Father God, thank you again for uh, this beautiful Sunday morning, uh, our ability to, to gather in this space. Lord, we just pray that as we approach your word, as we look at a story from scripture, uh, that you're able to speak to each of us where we are, that the words are not just words written on a page long ago, but words that are alive because your spirit's in them. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> all right. Uh, I love that Carter told a story about just how his journey and these in, in next steps into uh, being into faith, into being part of the church, into all of those things. Uh, because we, 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 we spent most of our year this year working through the book of Genesis, and we ended that a couple weeks ago. And then last week, we kicked off this new series uh, that's just asking the question, why does church matter? Uh, it's, we, we, we said a lot of different things about church last week, realizing that, statistically speaking, over the last number of years, church attendance, particularly in America, has been on the decline uh, pretty significantly. Uh, and uh, the younger you are, the more you're asking that question, why do this? Why get together every Sunday morning? Why gather together? Why does church matter? And so we're actually spending the next five weeks after this, six weeks total, asking that question, what are we doing here? What's this for? And so we're going to be doing that by exploring what it means to partner together with God to bring good news to the world. If you weren't here last week, um, we set the stage for why church matters. And, so, and we did that by, by first uh, talking about the world that Jesus found himself in. And in that world, we, we, what we saw last week is that there's a, lot of the, uh, there's a lot of similarities between the world that Jesus found himself in and our world. The world that Jesus spoke into was filled with political division. Uh, which I know that one's hard to relate to today, um, but it was really prominent back then. Um, uh, there, were, there, were, uh, there, were, there were four different political factions all striving for power uh, in this space. The Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were all kind of fighting over who got to be in charge. There was, there was big division around moral issues. What does the Bible say is right and not right? Uh, which, again, hard to relate to today, but that was a big deal. There was, eight, there was a debate about eight different things. Uh, and actually, a lot of those we saw pop up in the New Testament when the Pharisees are challenging Jesus, asking him which side of the coin does he fall on. Actually, one of the examples is the coin. Should we pay taxes or not? Uh, we talked about how there was a lot of financial strain. Uh, that Rome had, had levied heavy taxes over their conquered areas, and so you had a regional tax, you had a temple tax, you had a Roman tax. Estimated somewhere between 70 and 90% of your income was paid in taxes, which meant that if you were a normal person, you didn't have a lot for anything else. And so there was a lot of financial strain at the time. And there was also religious strife. Uh, there's, a, there's a weird hybrid whenever we talk about the factions fighting for power between political power, because each of them wanted that, but also all of them claimed that political power on a religious basis, so they were fighting over that as well. We also saw a large amount of apathy uh, in, for, for Romans saying, hey, Zeus hasn't really done us well, uh, and, or for even Jewish people who are saying neither has the, church, or the, 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 the temple done us well, and so you have a lot of people just starting to question everything. Again, very similar situations we find ourselves in now. And it was into that world, into the world that looks a lot like ours, that Jesus gives, gives the church. And he says to the church, I want you to function like my body here on earth now. Uh, and it, it actually, in the, in, um, uh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. It's into that world that he speaks. But then we, we also looked at last week how uh, there's, there's been this cycle uh, throughout history. About every 500 years, there's major shifts within the world. 
right? If you look at the 500-year shifts, 500 years ago from now, uh, around, approximate, uh, was the Protestant Reformation, in which all of the, uh, of, of the way that we understood church shifted, right? That's uh, Martin Luther and the 99 Theses on the Wall, uh, the, the rise of the Protestant church, um, separated from the Catholic church. We had this major religious shift. 500 years before that, we had something known as the Great Schism, where the Roman Catholic Church separates from the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, Protestants don't think about that one as much, but it's a huge moment in the history of the church. About 500 years before that, we have the fall of Rome, the last Roman Empire, uh, Roman Emperor, uh, and in, and which, which uh, it, coming along with the shift from Christianity to being legal and then becoming a world religion. Uh, and then obviously 500 years before that, you have Jesus, which was a fundamental shift in the religious culture. Actually, on that list, we see that it goes back even further, all the way back to Abraham. But we get these major shifts in the world, and we ask the question, could it be true that we're in one of those right now? I mean, it fits the timeline, right? In which we have to rethink why church matters. What we saw through all of that was that when the church, in these cycles, the reason that we have these major shifts is that in each of those spaces, the church kind of loses its way. Whether it was in the Protestant Reformation, looking at the Catholic Church going, hey, there's some things here that are really detrimental, and we want to reform those. Or whether it was Jesus looking at the religious institutions of his day going, there's something really messed up here, we need to change these things. The harshest words that Jesus speaks to anyone in Scripture are to the religious folks of his day, because they've missed the point. So we've seen that in each of these spaces, when the religious people lose their way, when we, when we, when we make it about a whole bunch of other things, uh, things get weird and we need to shift. So we said that, we, that our goal then is to go back to the essentials. We talked about a book written by a woman who has a funny name, but she's brilliant, Phyllis Tickle, who, who actually described it as a rummage sale. That in each of these shifts, the church is required to take everything they have out and go, what of this needs to just be thrown away? What needs to be restored and then what needs to be kept because it's essential to what we're doing. And we talked about in those shifts that we need to, we, we need to take account of what we're doing uh, so that we, can, that we can go back to just the essentials. The reason why, and I know I'm recapping everything from last week, but it's, but it's important. But the reason why is that we've also seen that even though in each of these 500-year shifts there's been heartache, it's been difficulty, there's been strife, there's been challenge, when the church finds its way again, amazing things happen. Major shifts in general society, major shifts in how we treat each other or view the world happen when the church finally goes back to its essentials and do things God's way. Which gave us to the conclusion last week, why church? Because it's how we change the world. We come together to collectively use our God-given skills to spur one another on, to wrestle together to discern where God's leading, and to work together towards flourishing in Christ. That's what church is for. That's why we gather in this space. I fundamentally believe that church is, this, is, an, is an incredibly important thing because we can't do this life together. We can't wrestle through the difficult questions in this world alone because we don't have all the perspective we need. So then, if all of that is true, how do we begin to discern what makes it through the rummage sale? And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next five weeks. Now, one more thing before we dive into our passage today, just so that we can all be on the same page. Uh, we are going to be talking about it in the language of partnership. And so um, that can be a little confusing at times because uh, partnership uh, in, 
in the past um, has also has been synonymous with membership. And membership has a negative connotation in our society, and maybe somewhat rightly so. Historically, membership was what you did when you were part of a church. You became a member. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But what it tends to happen in that is we tend to view that kind of commitment like we view Costco or Netflix or something, right? That, um, that I'm part of this club, I'm a member of it, and then there's like a hierarchy. There are those who are in and those who are, are out. Uh, we want to work really, really hard to make sure we, that you all understand that's not what we're doing. That's, that's not our intention. That's not what we're hoping for. See, we, the way that we're thinking about it is we think there's a difference between membership and partnership. Membership requires some kind of exchange, right? I give Paramount money, they let me watch Star Trek, right? I give Costco money, and then I buy too much stuff, right? Uh, that's kind of how that works. There's an exchange of goods in that way. Membership requires an exchange, but partnership requires a commitment to certain things, sure, but more importantly, to someone else. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for the next five weeks. What does it look to commit to each other in that space? We also pointed out last week that commitment is a scary word for many of us because it's fallen out of vogue in our society. Because commitment means accountability, which we don't like. It means effort, which we don't like either. And it often means pain. When we've committed to each other, it means that we've put ourselves in a vulnerable place where we can actually hurt each other as well. So as a society, we just lower the bar. We just swipe right, we cancel any time, we unfollow. But we looked at last week that that's not how God designed his church to be. In the same space where he says, I'm going to give you this church, so he says it's going to function like a body, like my body. Uh, and he actually says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together. He's talking about the church, giving greater honor to the parts that it lacked. So that there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. For if one part is honored, every part is honored with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. We said last week that, that this, this low commitment idea of culture where we just lower the bar isn't the model for church. It actually says in this passage that, that we need each other, that this thing doesn't work right unless we're together in it. We can't say to anybody, we don't need you. Because the thing doesn't work unless we're all working on it together. And so, in front of you in a pew, you'll find a little orange card. Uh, I, I want to encourage all of you to, uh, to take one. Uh, if there aren't enough in the pews, there are a bunch more in back. Uh, and you don't need to do anything with it right now. Um, but I want, you, I, I want to encourage you to take one with you. Uh, to look at the different commitments that we're going to be talking about in partnership. If you want them in more detail, there's actually a whole uh, pamphlet in back you can grab as well. And then as we go through this series and talk about what each of these commitments mean, uh, I want to challenge you to pray over whether that's something you can do or would be willing to do. Now again, to be really, really clear here, and I know I'm rehashing a lot, but it's because we're trying to shift a paradigm a little bit. <clears throat> what we're asking is for you to pray over whether you can commit to each other on these things. And I very intentionally want to say commit to each other, not to me. I don't need you to commit to me. I don't need you to commit to the idea of Harbor Life or the building or something like that either uh, in that space. That's not what we're talking about. 
What we're going to be asking you to do is consider the commitments that we're asking in partnership and ask them if you can commit to each other for a year. Because you are the body of Christ. You are the church. We're asking, the, the goal of partnership is not to see who's a member, who's in, and who's out, but can we actually raise the bar a little bit and make commitments to each other so that we can function in the way that 1 Corinthians talks about. Now, I also want you to encourage to take these commitments seriously. Uh, we're going to ask you to make a commitment for one year. So next year at this time, we'll, we'll do it again. We'll, we'll reset what we mean by that. Maybe we'll adjust it if we feel like God's led us in that way, and we'll commit to each other again. But we're asking you to make a commitment for a year, and hopefully you can, you can do that and, and not make it flippant. <clears throat> So, like I said, at the very end of this, this series, we're going to ask you to consider to make a formal commitment to each other for the next year. But I also want to be super clear about this next part. If you get to the end of the series and you feel like you're not comfortable with making a commitment or you're not ready for a partnership commitment, that's okay. Like we said, we don't want you to make this flippantly or feel like you have to. Uh, that's, that's not what we're going for here. We're actually, if you get to the end and say, I'm not ready to do that yet, I want to thank you for being honest about that. It makes the commitment that you make, of, if you ever make one, meaningful. <clears throat> if you choose not to formally partner with Harbor Life at the end of this whole thing, with each other in, at the end of this whole thing, I want to assure you that our posture towards you does not change. Right? Each week we say, this is a place you can belong before you believe, and we mean it. If, this is the thing, if you're saying, I can't get on board with these commitments because I'm not sure I believe them yet, okay, you still have a space here. You're welcome here. You can be part of us. Nothing changes from our posture towards you. And I want to I say that as, as, as strongly as I possibly can. Now, I firmly believe there's value in committing to one another, but only as far as it's genuine. So I don't want anybody to commit to something like this out of feeling pressure or feeling like it's what you have to do to be part of the group. We're not saying that. If you're not ready right now, that's fine. Maybe you will be a month from now. Maybe you never will be. That, no matter what, you have a place here. You're valuable to us. All right. With that stage set, let's talk about commitment one and move into our story today. Uh, we're going to be in the book of John today. I actually think this story fits perfectly uh, for what we're going to be talking about today. So if you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in John 3, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, uh, which begins like this. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now, I want to just stop here for a few minutes. I want to point out a few things that I think I'm, that matter for our understanding of this story. So the story starts, uh, and, and John tells us about this meeting between a guy uh, named Nicodemus and, and Jesus. And so the first question that we ask ourselves is, is who is Nick, Ademus, right? Um, what do we know about him? Well, the, the first thing we, we know is his name. Now, we say this a lot around here, but... Um, in our culture, names don't mean as much as they did then, right? When I, when I come and I meet uh, Daniel, right, uh, I don't immediately think, well, what does Daniel mean? What is he trying to communicate to me? No, I just know his name. That's what he's called. Uh, that's not the case in the ancient world. Names communicated something. Uh, that's why people are quick to change their names in the Bible, uh, because when, what, what your name is is, is is representing something about you to the person you meet. It's... 
Uh, it says something about you before you even got to know them. And so we have uh, Nicodemus' name. What does Nicodemus mean? Well, Nicodemus is actually a compound word of two Greek words. Uh, they're smashed together. The first part of it is the word nikos, which maybe you already can ring in your ear a little bit as something familiar. Nikos means victory. Uh, also, some of you might be wearing some nikos on your feet right now because it is the same word as Nike, right? It's the idea of uh, a victory and Nike, that's all the same Greek word. So the first part of Nicodemus' name is nikos, victory. And the second is demos, which is a mass of people. In other words, together, it's, his name means a victory, the victory of the people. Right? That's, 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 what, that's what he's communicating with his name right out of the gate. So we realize that Nicodemus is kind of a big deal. People know him. He has apartments with many leather-bound books, and it smells of mahogany. Uh, that's the kind of person we're talking about here, right? <laughs> Next, it says that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, that's another big deal. Which it says that tells us a number of things about who this person is. First, he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees, now there were lots of different kinds of Pharisees. Pharisees, in their most general term, is just your local preachers. There were Pharisees all over the place. There'd be in synagogues up north uh, in Galilee, but there'd be some in Jerusalem. There'd be all over the place. They're your local pastors, if you will. Uh, they taught the scripture, they taught the law, they were studied in that way. But this also tells us that he's an important Pharisee. There are regular Pharisees, regular Maybe you can even think about it like uh, maybe the Catholic Church can help you a little bit. You have priests, then you have bishops, archbishops, the Pope, um, similar kind of hierarchy within the Pharisees. So to be part of the Jewish ruling council means he's part of something called the Sanhedrin. Uh, he's not just, a, just some guy from a small synagogue in Galilee. Uh, he has status and power and significance. The Sanhedrin was a court of 71 people. It was a religious legislative body that interpreted the law and made rules for Israel. They were in charge of appointing rulers, high priests. Uh, they, were, they were judge and jury in all religious matters, and they oversaw almost all the religious festivals. These 71 guys were significantly powerful in the Jewish world, and Nicodemus is one of them. We're talking about a guy who's popular among the people, the victor of the people, we're talking about a guy who has religious and political power. Uh, we also know from history uh, that you didn't get one of those seats unless you had money as well. And we'll actually see later some of the examples of how he had money. He's rich, he's famous, he's beloved, he's powerful. That's the guy we're talking about. That's Nicodemus. Which leads us to our final observation then from the passage. Nicodemus the victory of the people, a member of the Sanhedrin, a man who is powerful, rich, and influential, comes to Jesus when? In the middle of the night, by himself, which is strange. If you were a person in that space, that's not the way you would normally come to meet somebody. One wouldn't go by yourself. Uh, it can be dangerous in the ancient world at night. Uh, two, you didn't go at night because it's dangerous in the ancient world at night. So neither one of those things were normal. That means something is strange here. Why is he going in the middle of the night? Well, you see, Nick is wrestling. He's supposed to be the one with all the answers, and suddenly there's this guy who's changing the paradigm. 
He's helping the hurting, he's healing the sick, he's serving the poor, and he's calling out the religious structures. Now, we're at the beginning of John, so the Pharisees are still trying to figure Jesus out. He's only been on the stage for a little while. But back in chapter 2, the one right before this story, is the story in John where Jesus clears the temple. So already, he's made a little bit of a, a buzz amongst the Pharisees. Right, They're the ones who allowed the temple to be what it was. Jesus gets really mad. He drives out all the money changers in that space. So, so he's not obscure at this point. They know who he is. So Nicodemus has clearly been watching Jesus. And he believes some of the things he's teaching. We see that from their interaction. He believes the things that he's doing have come from God, but there's a number of parts of what Jesus does that just doesn't make sense to him, that he's struggling with, that he's trying to figure out what to do with. And so he sneaks out without his colleagues knowing in the middle of the night to go have a conversation with Jesus. And the story continues. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can anyone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Thank you for that visual, Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. The wind, the spirit, same word there. Uh, you, hear, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it, is when ev- so it is when everyone is born of the Spirit. So maybe you've heard this phrase if you've been around religious folks before. This is where the phrase born-again Christian comes from. Um, but I wonder how many of us have actually wrapped our, ri- our heads around this metaphor. I think it's been misused quite a bit, and I can, can get a bad rap because of that. But because honestly, the meaning that Jesus is going for here is a little abstract. And actually, it's so abstract that Nicodemus doesn't get it at first either. But let's see if we can understand what Jesus is saying a little bit better. First, and very importantly, Jesus is not talking about just getting to heaven when you die. If, uh, if, you, were, if you were here for our Matthew series, I hope that this idea has been deeply ingrained in your mind Jesus' first words of preaching in the book of Matthew were, turn or repent, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. We talked about as we worked through the book of Matthew that Jesus' declaration is the kingdom is here and you just need eyes to be able to see it. Far too often when we, when we see these phrases like, you can't, you can't experience the kingdom of heaven unless, we think only about making a decision and then going to the end of your life and being in heaven that way. That's not how Jesus talks about the kingdom. Jesus talks about it as a future reality that we get to in its fullness, but far more often he talks about it as a reality that's already here that we can experience. He tells a parable about wheat and weeds where there's, the kingdom begins to grow, but the weeds grow with it. That's where we find ourselves, where we can experience bits of the kingdom now and sin still exists. So what Jesus is saying is if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, which is where all around you, you need to be born again where Nicodemus follows it up with how. He's thinking about it literally, right? That's where we get that awesome image he gave us of going back and trying again, but we'll leave that be. So how does it work then? Well, if we dive into the metaphor, the first question we ask, do anybody here remember being born? No, of course not, right? Now, maybe you remember your kids being born or something like that, but that's different. We don't remember being born. 
when you were born, did, did that happen because you passed some, some kind of test or believed some kind of thing or accomplished some good thing? No, of course not, right? Birth is something that happens to us, not something that we do. So let's play the metaphor out a little bit more then. In the womb, a baby is completely and surrounded and enveloped by the mother. So much so that the baby cannot see the mother, at least not the way that most of us think about when we see what we say about we see somebody. Clearly, there, it's, you, get it, you get it. It's a metaphor. The baby has no concept of what or who the mother is or even where he or she is. Its inability to see or picture the mother is, caused, uh, is, a, is because of the mother's all-enveloping presence, not because of her absence. The mother is so present, she cannot be seen or conceptualized. To see the mother, the baby has to experience birth. In order for the baby to see the realities around us, it must be born. That's the metaphor Jesus is using. That many of us are completely enveloped but can't see clearly. And there's this birth that happens in which now we can experience the realities of the world around us. Let's apply that to Nicodemus. He lives inside of a particular religious system. If we want to get a little weird with it, he's in the womb of a particular understanding of who God is and how God works. He has ideas on how things are supposed to go and what reality is to him. But if he wants to see what's, what actually is, the fact that the kingdom is all around him, he's going to have to be birthed out of that womb to see with new eyes what God is doing. Again, it's a little bit of an abstract metaphor. I get that, but hopefully you're all tracking with me here. Jesus continues. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you don't understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I love Nicodemus' response, because I think it's honest. Uh, We can often paint all the Pharisees as the bad guys, and they do earn that title sometimes in the New Testament. But if we slow down, what I find more often than not is that they become really relatable to us. Maybe some of you have been in the exact same place Nicodemus is in. I'm just going to throw out a scenario for you. It actually is my own life, so that we're in that same boat. Let's say you grew up in the faith. Let's say you went to church with your family every Sunday, maybe even twice. Yes, there was a time where you'd go twice on Sunday. I lived in that era for most of my life. Uh, You went to Sunday school, you learned the right memory verses, you had the right practices, the right sayings, the right way to do things. During the week, you even went to a religious school where you learned even more about the way things work, how you were supposed to understand God, you were a good student, you knew all the right answers, your faith was safe, it was comfortable, you knew your place in it, you knew the right things to say and the right things to do. Maybe some of you can relate to that. But then one day, you experienced something major. Uh, maybe it was a new kind of teacher, like Nicodemus in this case, or maybe it was a major life event, a loss, uh, or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, that, re- that rigid structure you understood so well doesn't make complete sense anymore. Maybe some of you have been there before. Now, I'm not t- trying to take a shot at traditions here or religious schools. I'm a graduate of one, and there are a lot of great things there. That's not what I'm try- the point I'm trying to make at all. 
What I'm trying to point, the point I'm trying to make is that in these moments of questioning, where you might be met with a truth that doesn't fit your old model, it's in those moments that you might ask yourself, just like Nicodemus did, how can this be? See, there's dueling questions in that statement. I think both are healthy. The first, how can this be? Or in other words, could Jesus be right? Because if he is, it changes everything that Nicodemus knows about God. And it's good for someone like Nicodemus to be discerning about that. He shouldn't make that shift flippantly. But also, the other part of that question is, how can this be? How after all of that, all the things that I learned, all the ways that I was brought up, all the thought things that I was taught, how could it be that I missed some of this stuff? If you've ever been in that space, you know that's an unsettling revelation, isn't it? Where all of these structures that you built don't work anymore and you go, how could this be? And it feels like the foundation you were standing on gets shaky. That's where Nicodemus finds himself which I think for many of us in our faith life is something that we've experienced before. Jesus continues. He said, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 3.16. And so here's where the rubber meets the road in this conversation. Jesus uses an Old Testament story to help make his point. In the book of Numbers, there's a story about Israelite camp that was struck with a plague of poisonous snakes. These snakes come out and they're biting people and people are getting sick. So Moses then raises a snake up on a pole and everyone who looks to the snake is saved. God tells them to do all of that. Jesus says that's where our understanding of the, of, of the kingdom will begin too. Not by looking to a snake on a pole, but by looking to Jesus on the cross. Now one major point before we move on says, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Going back to where we started at the beginning, sometimes this is where we can get off track and understanding what Jesus means in that statement. For some of us, we can understand this, this meaning as an intellectual assent to, assent to, to believe in something. <clears throat> right? I, I know or I think, I believe that God is real. Right? Those kind of things. But that's an unhelpful understanding. We think about it as an intellectual assent to. I know that God is real. I know these things about him. Therefore, I believe. But the Greek word here is different. It's the Greek word pistis, which means to commit one's trust to. See, I think a number of people can get stuck here in their faith life. I believe in Jesus to them means I believe intellectually that he existed. Or I even I intellectually believe he was God. Or I intellectually believe he was raised from the dead. Which are good things to know. I'm not knocking that at all. But if you're going to pistis, the, the Greek word pistis in Jesus, you're not just, you're, it's not just knowing those things. It's trusting in him. 
which is fundamentally different. It's where we get the idea of faith and works. Faith without works is dead. If I trust somebody to have my best interests in mind, then I'll do what they've asked me to, right? If I have faith in somebody, pistis in somebody, if I, where I believe in them and I believe in them, I trust in them, then I trust that the things they're asking me to do, the direction they're leading me, is in my best interest, which means that I will do the things they said. Faith without works is dead, because if I don't do the things the person has asked me to do, then I generally inherently do not have faith. Does that make sense? I have no trust in them. Now, I'm not going to break down the entire th theology of heaven. That would take too long. Uh, but this idea is the entry criteria. See, back in Genesis, we talked about the original sin of humanity was the desire to be the God of your own life. That's what the devil offers Eve. If you eat of this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve goes, yes, that's what I want. I want to be the God of my own life. It's been the fall of humanity for the entirety of our time. It's still something we struggle with a lot. But what Jesus is saying is if you want to experience the kingdom now, then you need to trust me to be God and not you. Or Brent. If you want to experience that for eternity, you will need to completely lay down your striving to be God and allow me to be God, then you will be saved. So often we think about it as this transactional thing that we're saying, save from who? From God? Well, that feels wrong to many of us, right? But, that, but when we understand what's going on here, we realize we're not being saved from God, we're being saved from ourselves. See, the judgment of God is this. If you are not willing to let me be God, fine, have it your way. But I'll warn you, it will be absolutely terrible for you. You will be your own destruction. Does that make sense? I hope so. If not, come talk to me later, please. What Jesus is asking us for in salvation in general and the commitment is to say, in the fall, you wanted to be the gods of your own life. If you have faith in me, if you trust me, I can be a better God than you can because it's not working for us. Lay down your desire to be God and let me be God because that's how eternity will work. It isn't about the anger of God saying, I want to hurt you. It's saying that in this new way we're going to do things, it doesn't work unless I'm God. If you accept that, you're welcome here. If you're not, fine, have it your way, but it will be miserable. So we can understand why Nicodemus is wrestling. He has power, he has wealth, he has prestige, he has control over things in his life. And what Jesus is saying to him is, if you want to experience the kingdom, and Nicodemus has already realized there's something else out there he's not seeing. If you want to experience the kingdom, you're going to have to lay those things down. You're going to have to take the trust that you've put in your system or your knowledge or your wealth or yourself or whatever it might be and put it into Jesus instead. And that's terrifying, isn't it? I lose my power, my prestige, my control, and I actually have to trust it to someone else. Let's not pretend that's an easy thing to do. Faith is not an easy thing to do. We've misunderstood that a lot. If it means that, which it does, it's super hard. 
And we all experience that in different ways. There are parts of me that I'm happy to, and there are parts that I still find myself saying, God, I just want to hold that for me. I don't want to give that control up. But how does the story end? Well, in this interaction, Jesus leaves Nicodemus to wrestle with everything they've just talked about. We aren't told anything in this chapter about how Nick responds. His worldview's been rocked, uh, but he's going to need some time to work that all through. And if this was the last time we ever saw him, we'd be really confused about where he went. We wouldn't know. But it's not the last time we see him. He pops back up in the story. Actually, in chapter 7, we see him again. Finally, the temple guards went to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in, him being Jesus? They wanted to arrest him. The guards responded, no one has ever spoke the way this man does. The guards replied, you mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. They're blinded, essentially, is what he's saying. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, just so you know it's the exact same guy, and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Which, by the way, is like a middle school insult, right? Galilee is like the backwoods, and they're basically calling him a redneck. Anyway, um, truthfully, all right. Uh, look, uh, look into it, and you'll find that no, a prophet doesn't come out of Galilee, and they went home. I love this interaction, and I love that John gives it to us. Because Nick, Nicodemus knows there's something to Jesus, but he's still not ready to go all in. Notice, his Pharisee brothers and sisters don't know that he's been talking to Jesus. We do. They don't. Even in their statement, has a single Pharisee believed him? Yeah, one kind of does right now, but they don't know. He's kind of still hiding. He's not all in. He's still wrestling with that first interaction four chapters later. And he's still not ready to even step out. He's not saying, I believe. And I, he's saying, shouldn't we hear him a little bit more? He's willing to defend Jesus a little bit, but he's still not ready to go all, all the way in. He stands up for Jesus, and as a result, he's bullied like a middle schooler in a hallway. But he won't go all the way. If we were to end here... We'd be stuck with Nicodemus going, where does he end up? He's, we can see he's in this middle space kind of wrestling with where to go. Uh, but we don't end here because this is still not the last time we see Nicodemus. Jumping all the way to chapter 19, he shows up again. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. This is after the crucifixion. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Who was his secret companion? With Pilate's permission, he, and, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus in the night, just to make sure we know it's the same one. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes of about 75 pounds. Remember when we said there's, a, there's proof that he was rich? That's the proof. That's a, an expensive burial stuff. See, in the end, Nicodemus is still there. At this point, being with Joseph of Arimathea, who is a secret disciple, we can assume Nicodemus is too. And if you, if you trust the traditions, he's been made a saint. He's a saint in both the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the history of the church says Nicodemus becomes a significant member of the early church. He becomes a follower of Jesus. See, I, I think Nicodemus' story is perfect for our first commitment. It's beautiful. It's authentic, it's relatable, it's honest. 
See, the first commitment we're asking you all to consider is the same one Jesus challenges Nicodemus with. Our first commitment is stated this way. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead to to be my Savior and profess my commitment to his lordship over my life. You see, as a body of Christ, as a church, the foundation of everything that we'll do will be based on a belief, on a pistis, on a trust that Jesus is who he said he was and, that he's, and it's worth allowing him to be the God of our lives. We as a church community are committed to seeing the world through kingdom lenses, to working with Jesus to make the world around us look a little bit more like heaven than hell, to opening our eyes to see the kingdom that's already present around us. And Jesus is pretty clear in this story that that road begins by being born again, by leaving behind the areas we believe we do a better job at being God and seeing through the world through the lens of Jesus. Now, we're not going to be shy here. We're asking all of you to consider or not whether you can partner with us in that. We're asking you to say yes to Jesus. Not to just knowing that he exists or knowing that he was God up here, but actually trusting that he desires what's best for you. Trusting that the kingdom way is the better way, the fuller way, the way we were created to live, even if it isn't the easiest, and often it's not. We're asking you to commit to each other in this, which has a lot of practical implications of how we do things. That's saying that we're committing to each other to wrestle with what God's led us to because we believe it's the best. That sometimes we're going to have disagreements on that and we're going to have to do work to figure it out. It's committing to not giving up on those things because we've committed to God, to Jesus in his way. It's a big deal. And I realize some of you aren't there yet. And that that ask feels really big for you. You aren't sure? Because it would mean some pretty fundamental shifts in the way you do things, in the way you see things, in the way you treat people, in the way you relate to God. Which is why I love this story so much for this week. Because Nicodemus walks that exact same walk. He starts his journey with Jesus in chapter 3, coming in the middle of the night. He could see that there was something about this Jesus guy that was different, but he wasn't sure yet if he was going to go all in or if that was even the right call because it would risk. It was dangerous to him. And so he wasn't ready in chapter 3 to make that commitment. Even in chapter 7, maybe he's moved a little bit more in that direction, but he's still not ready to make that commitment. That's okay. It takes till chapter 19 until he's finally in. There might be some of you here who are like Nicodemus in chapter 3. That you've snuck in here in the middle of the night. You don't even want your friends to know that you came to church on Sunday. Because you think maybe there's something different here. If you're here because of that, I'm so glad you're here. Let's keep walking together. Friends, throughout this entire series... We're going to ask you all to commit to each other on hard things because we think that's what Jesus asks his followers to do. To commit to certain things together because in those commitments, knowing that we'll be with each other through hard things 
allows us to, to make our way through the rummage sale of the shifts that are happening in society and to rebuild a space that cares for each other, that wrestles with the hard things of Scripture, that's committed to letting God be God and not ourselves, so that hopefully we can have eyes to see the kingdom that's all around us. I want, I'll, tell, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll just reiterate it again. I want to encourage you, before you leave today, to grab one of these cards. Take it home, put it on your fridge or wherever you put these kinds of things, and think about it regularly. Look at commitment one and ask yourselves, can I commit to the people who are sitting around me <clears throat> to say yes to Jesus for the next year with them? To commit to working with them to do things God's way in the best way that we know how. We're not going to do it perfectly. We'll have to wrestle. We'll make mistakes. But we are, what we're going to clearly and directly say that everything we're trying to do is pointed towards Jesus. Like we've already seen, that's not a light commitment. It's a dangerous one because it may require you to change some of the way you're doing things. It may require you to engage with yourself differently, to look at some of the things you're doing in your life and saying, hey, this isn't causing me to flourish. It may force you to look at some of your relationships with other people and say, hey, the way that this is going isn't the way that I flourish. It, will, it may force you to look at people you disagree with or have strife with. It may require you to lay down some of your power or position or popularity. Faith isn't easy. It's trusting in someone else to have your best interests in mind. And that's scary. And yet we're going to ask for it anyway. I encourage you to go home and pray over that's, whether that's something you can do. Next week, we're going to continue that discussion as well, realizing that well, because this first connection is so scary and difficult, I will trust God to be God, and I am not God. Next week, we'll talk about how that journey is a series of next steps, that after you say yes to Jesus, we realize that's not the end of it, that from that point on, we're going to have to continue to wrestle with what does that even mean. And so we'll invite you into that space as well. From there... We realize that we take those next steps, but we don't do them alone. We'll talk about what it means to be a community of Jesus. Closing it all up by realizing that if we're able to be a community of Jesus that, that takes next steps together, wrestling with what God has for us, that we'll experience a flourishing that God has for us that we can't keep to ourselves either. And so we'll talk about what it means to share it with those who aren't here. To invite them into this wrestling space with this to add more members to the body. Not so that we can celebrate ourselves, but we realize the more parts that we have, the better we function. See, I believe church matters. I believe we're one of the only spaces in the world where we can commit to something bigger than ourselves, to put down a desire to be the God of our own lives, to wrestle together with something greater than us where we can get rid of all of the junk that we've had from the past and work, step into something new to experience a new kind of life that is available to us in this world. I hope through this series you'll continue to grow uh, in your understanding of what church is and why it matters, and then we're able to commit to each other for the purpose of, of sharing that flourishing with the rest of the world around us. Will you pray with me?
Father God, we just want to come before you today and, uh, and ask to hear your voice. Uh, maybe, maybe there are people in this room who, uh, who committed to you a long time ago, but realized that while we might know that you're there, believe that you exist, we haven't allowed for, the lordship, uh, for your lordship in our lives. That we trust in your existence, but maybe we don't trust in the way that you've led us. And Lord, we pray that for those of us in that space, give us a renewed vigor to search out where you are leading and step into it. To say yes to you again in a new way. God, we pray for those who are here who are wrestling for maybe the first time or the first time in a long time with what they believe about you at all. How much can they trust? Where is it scary? Where are those edges? And just pray that you make them feel loved. Let them know that your heart beats for them and with them. That you help us be a community that is continually and regularly welcoming to anyone who may be coming in the middle of the night just to see what it might be all about. God, we pray that throughout this entire series, as we make commitments to partner with each other, to walk towards you, that you guide us through it all. Amen.